Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here to tell you today, as I like to make new friends always, the spirit of Vatican II leads to apostasy, and I'm going to explain to you why. And it has to do with the Christian humanism that Pope Paul VI was a big fan of. And I'm going to go through a couple passages here from a book called Prometheus. This is put out by Angelus Press. I haven't finished the book. I'm, I don't know, 50 pages in or whatever it is. But the first part of it's pretty monumental. The whole book is very dense in a good way. And uh, what's really striking me right now is the reality of the dangers of Christian humanism, which are very complicated and, in my opinion, are worse even than positive errors. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we go. Sorry if you hear my dog barking in the background. He doesn't respect my time, so to speak. Before we get into that, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Aura et Calora. You can see here, Aura et Calora is essentially an endeavor for basically amazing Catholic coloring adventures. And it's more than just a coloring book. It's a visual prayer, a canvas of devotion, and a personal sanctuary where art and soul meet, whether as a tranquil retweet, 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 no, that's X now, retreat or an educational exploration. This book is a testament to the timeless tales of the church's holy men and women, a colorful ode to the echoes of their sanctity and sacrifice. This is an incredible thing. I'm really happy to support the gentleman who started this. It's got an amazing selection of saints and martyrs to color in this sort of silhouette, stained glass way. It's not just for little kids, I should say. I think young adults and so forth would love this. Um, you can find the link for this in the description to this video. So check out Aura et Calora. Support a Catholic business. If you get it on Amazon, I think it works on Prime. I mean, you get some last-minute Christmas presents, throw these in the stockings. I think that's a good idea. So thank you to Aura Calora for sponsoring the show for today. Check out the link in the description for this product. Okay, so how does Vatican II lead to apostasy? Well, we should define some terms here. First, what is apostasy? Apostasy, let's, let's speak in layman terms here, it means giving up your religion. It means leaving the faith. In some ways, it's heresy, but it's very different. A heretic in the real formal sense is someone who really believes an error. So Martin Luther was a heretic. A Protestant pastor who rejects Catholicism is a real heretic, you know, knowingly is going to reject it. There's a distinction to be made between positive error and sort of accidental error. So someone's in ignorance because of what they're taught and they believe a heresy. There's a, a state of material heresy there. Are they a formal heretic? Well, that does happen at a certain point when they ascend to the heresy. That's a whole other conversation for another day. I did cover that in my episode, No Salvation Outside the Catholic Church. It's a few podcasts back. It's three hours long. If you want to listen to it on YouTube, you can. It's also available on Spotify or whatever. And we go into ignorance is not bliss. Just because someone doesn't know they're in error, you know, it's not like love that covers a multitude of sins. Ignorance does not cover a multitude of sins. You can't be in error, even if accidentally and be saved. That has to be understood correctly, and I talk about that in my podcast. But nonetheless, there is such thing as a formal heretic, which is someone who really is convinced about their errors. An apostate is someone who leaves religion, who leaves the faith. So, you know, we would say things like, so-and-so is a lapsed Catholic. In, so, in, in some sense, so-and-so is, is something like a material apostate. You know, he may have never repudiated the faith publicly. He may have never you know, pinched incense to Caesar explicitly, but he just gave up on religion, doesn't go to church anymore by his own decision, and just rejects being Catholic, at least in his actions. That's a type of apostasy. Even if there's a, if there's a capital A apostasy and a small A apostasy, 
it's kind of in that spectrum, if that makes sense. Well, how does Vatican II have to come into this? Well, the real problem with Vatican II is the spirit of Vatican II. And this word, spirit of Vatican II, and yeah, I'll continue. I shouldn't do too many tangents. You always hear about this whole spirit of Vatican II. Well, that's a false spirit of Vatican II. That's the, you know, what's, well, what is the real spirit of Vatican II? You know, people love to point out when traditionalists will comment on the Second Vatican Council and they say, well, that's the false spirit of Vatican II. It's like, okay, well, what's the real spirit? I've been trying to get an answer for this. What is the real spirit of Vatican II? Well, maybe we should look to Pope Paul VI because it's also kind of a crazy question. Like, what's the spirit of Vatican II? I don't know. Isn't it supposed to be Catholicism? You know, I guess we, I guess we understand. I, I know we can understand this in a very symbolic sense. Like, there was a spirit of counter-reformation that was part of the Council of Trent. Okay, I get that. But when you read the documents of the Council of Trent, there's no danger of like a false spirit. It's just, you know, if so-and-so believes this heretical doctrine, let him be anathema. It's very simple. There's, there's, it's impossible to like misinterpret the Council of Trent unless you're really, really trying. Vatican I, very similar. I know people like to talk about a false spirit of Vatican I, my friend Tim Flanders did. And that's true. There is a false spirit of Vatican I where people sort of view the Pope as like a divine oracle. But when you actually read the text, the reason why we can say it's a false spirit is because the text doesn't actually support that. It's very clear about true obedience. It's very clear about the limits of papal infallibility. You know, people not knowing what they're talking about and just sort of spouting off this idea of infallible. That's a problem. That's really a problem of ignorance. But I don't know if that's the same problem with the Second Vatican Council because when you read the documents... This whole, you know, spirit of Vatican II, which we're told isn't the real Vatican II, it seems to be pretty clear there in the documents. And I believe, and this book makes a really strong case for it, it's called Prometheus, the Religion of Man by Father Calderon. It was published 13 years ago, I think, in Spanish, but it's available in English now in the last couple of years. Um, the real spirit of Vatican II is a spirit of humanism. And as I said, I think we can actually look to something Paul VI said so don't take my word for it. Take his. I'm going to read a short passage here. And this was Paul VI's discourse at the closing session of the Second Vatican Council. So this is the Pope talking about the Council and kind of what he thinks about the Council. I mean, if we're supposed to follow the Pope, then maybe we should look at this. I mean, if people are coming at me because I'm a, you know, a schismatic and blah, blah, blah. And it's also interesting that Pope Paul VI here is quoting Jacques Maritain, who is on the one hand very traditional, on the one hand very progressivist and humanist and modernist. There are two Jacques Maritain, they say. Depends on which one you're reading on which day. But here's what Paul VI says. He says, Our humanism, his words, becomes Christianity. Our Christianity becomes theocentric, so much so that we can also affirm that to know God, it is necessary to know man. Let's just pause there. It is possible to understand this in a not heretical sense, in fairness. To know God is to know man. Okay, we're made in his image. There's a reality there for sure. Would not this council then, which has concentrated principally on man. So that's a kind of important thing. This council is concentrated principally on man, which means the council did not concentrate principally on God by the admission of the Pope. So let's just keep that in mind as we continue here. Be destined to set forth again to the modern world, the latter leading to freedom and consolation. What kind of freedom? I don't know. Would it not be, in short, a simple, new, and solemn teaching to love man in order to love God? To love man, we say, not as an instrument, a means, but rather as the first step, an end toward the highest. Transcendent goal, the beginning and reason of all love. And so this entire council, 
So this is Paul VI, this entire council. So don't, don't at me, you know, Vatican II bros saying I'm not representing Vatican II properly. I'm just reading the Pope here. This entire council may be reduced to its definitive religious significance, which is none other than a powerful and friendly invitation to, to the humanity of today and to find God once more through the path of brotherly love. So I'll, I'll repeat that. This entire council may be reduced to its definitive religious significance, which is none other than a powerful and friendly invitation to the humanity of today to find God once more through the path of brotherly love. So the entire council is reduced to the spirit of fraternity. Does this sound like Pope Francis? People think Pope Francis is really liberal. Pope Francis is not really that much different than Paul VI. Okay, so let's continue here. Some actual citations from Gaudium et Spes that are in line with this. One of the documents from Vatican II. The writer says, if we read Gaudium et Spes in light of these warnings, the explicitness of the personalist concept on which its doctrine is founded may well surprise us. All the errors of this way of thinking are exposed there. But for now, let us only look at what it does to the ideal of our final end. So our final end must be God, not man. Okay? And if we look at which, which document is this? It's from Gaudium et Spes as well. This is number 25. It says, The principal subject and end of all social institutions is and must be the human person. Hmm. Is that true? The principal subject and end of all social institutions is and must be the human person? So the beginning and the end is the human person. The Alpha and the Omega is the human person and not Christ? This is very much in contrast to the tradition of the church. Again, we can't say this is I mean, you make an argument, but I'm not even arguing here that it's an official heresy. I'm just saying that it causes a certain reaction, which will lead to apostasy, which we'll get to. And uh, let's continue here. He says, after a long, <laughs> he's joking here. He says, after a long, everything in that document is long talking about, got him spes, status questiones. The explanation begins with these phrases. Believers and unbelievers alike generally agree on this point. All the good things on earth must order themselves to the service of man, center and summit of them all. Let's read that again. All the good things on earth must order themselves to the service of man, center and summit of them all. Doesn't that sound kind of like the Tower of Babel? Continues. This is from Gaudian Spes. The Bible teaches us that man is being created in the image of God with the capacity to know and love his creator and who has been constituted by God as Lord of all visible creation to govern and use it, glorifying God. That's chapter 12 of that document, or paragraph 12. So man is center and summit, Lord and governor of all creation. Are these not the titles which we usually, ingenuously, attribute to God? So what this leads to is an anthropocentric inversion in what we would call the conciliar magisterium. And this is, this is a confusion of something. This is why this is so tempting. This is a confusion of, yes, we find in the scriptures that we love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is like the most important commandment. But the first part and the greatest of this commandment is to love God. And love of neighbor is second, and it's only like unto the first, because our neighbor is not the final goal, but an intermediate one, and is love only through God. So we can't love our neighbor unless we love God first. And to show our love for God, we love our neighbor through God. But Gaudium et Spes identifies love of God with love of men without distinction and gives this reason. This is from Gaudium et Spes. 
Man is the only earthly creature whom God has loved for his own sake. Now, this is definitely something proper to God, not man. Even so, then as it identifies love, so it identifies the two goals with each other. The goal of creation is God, that is man, which is what the creator intended. Now, this switches the relation of the person with the common good. And as I said here, Gaudium et Spes tells us, the principal subject and end of all social institutions is and must be the human person. So this is the danger. This leads to what we'll call an anthropocentric inversion in this conciliar magisterium. And the author says here, as we may gather from the previous texts, what we've talked about, the anthropocentric inversion in which the good of man is set as the final end of creation, exalting the generosity of the creator and the glory of man is identified without distinction with the glory of God. This is very grave, a very grave but subtle slope. And it, what he goes on to talk about is, this is not an explicit heresy, but the problem is, is that this manifests without necessarily explicit words or in explicit ways, but rather in its general spirit and its consequences. Okay, so if Pope Paul VI is saying that the spirit of the, the, the council boils down to a Christian humanism, then we have to understand through the council documents with this interpretive key from Paul VI, what is this humanism? Well, Gaudium et Spes, as I've just read, is very clear about this. These are just some selections. doesn't mean there's not many things in the council that are completely orthodox. It's just because there are certain statements that are dubiously orthodox, there are many that are completely orthodox. But that's the problem. You see, the reason why I'm going to say that ultimately this leads to a certain type of apostasy is because of this. What this does is this makes, the, this makes religion at the service of man and not religion at the service of God. There is no, and if, and if religion is at the service of man and all social institutions, etc., are for man, as the Gaudium et Spes says, and again, Pope Paul VI is giving us this humanist interpretive key, and, and remember, what is humanism? Humanism is, human is the end. That's why it's an ism, okay? Theism, God is the focus. Humanism, human is the focus. You know, this is, this is a very dangerous concept. But in any case, if the perfection of man and his environment and his society is the purpose of creation and is the goal that God has set forth, then the perfection of God's creation is found in the perfection of man. And this actually makes, well, this presents a really big problem if we understand our Thomas Aquinas. And I'll just read you a quick quotation. Here's another part where the author says something very important. He says, in identifying the glory of man with the glory of God and setting it up as the end, simpliciter, of creation, so this purpose, the creator is subordinated to the creature. For he who sets himself to seek a good as an end in itself is seeing in that good his own perfection. This is very Thomistic, and I'll read this, this citation here from Thomas Aquinas, this is from the first part of the Summa. Um, the essence of good consists in something being desirable. So, something is desirable insofar as it is good. The philosopher says in ethics that, that good is that which all desire. So, all desire good according to Thomas Aquinas. It is evident that something desirable is so insofar as it is perfect. So, the more perfect, the more desirable, because all desire their own perfection. So we desire the perfections, we desire to enter into the perfections of things 
because it's part of an implicit desire for our own protection or perfection. So he continues, from which it follows that if God should promote his extrinsic glory as an end in itself, so God's creation is his extrinsic, his external glory, and not his own intrinsic goodness, this would imply that for God, his creation would be an added perfection that would make him better. This is impossible to make God better. Because always and necessarily the end simpliciter is the perfection of the agent, and if there are two different entities, the agent is subordinated to the end as such. So if the end of creation is man, and God desires the perfection of man as man, we go back to this citation from Aquinas, this causes us reasons to, well, have, have a grave reconsideration. He goes and says, Hence, applying to God an end distinct from his own goodness is to imply and declare that God is not God. What does that mean? If we understand the logic of this, that we desire the perfection of another because we desire our own perfection, then if we confuse these ends, this seems to present to us that there is a reality where um, the perfection of God is to be found in his creature and not in himself. That's a really big problem because that makes God subordinate to his creature, which is a complete inversion. And this is why ultimately this leads to an apostasy. Because how do we define the perfection of man apart from becoming God in the, in the sense of theosis, of possessing God, of, of, of being partakers in the divine nature in the beatific vision? It is impossible to have man perfected on earth for many reasons. The only way man can be perfected is in heaven, is through sanctifying grace, is through partaking in the divine nature, is through all these, you know, things that will happen to us, God willing, if we're saved. Therefore, man cannot be perfected as man without being subordinate to God. Therefore, all of our institutions and all of our efforts must have God as the center of all functions and activities. And then man must come second and be loved in a divine sense for the sake of God. And what the spirit of Vatican II, the spirit of humanism does, is it tends to flip this thing on its head. And this is why it leads to an apostasy, because here's the thing. In fact, Anthony Fauci, he just, there's some quote going around from him. And he basically said, I don't practice religion anymore because my ethics are so strong. Now, he's obviously a sociopath and a mess, has a messianic complex, but it's revealing because Anthony Fauci is of that generation who went to university through the Second Vatican Council era, and he's an ed educated Catholic through Jesuit universities and all those kinds of things. He knows the spirit of Vatican II because he was taught it. And he believes that religion is for what? At the service of man. He believes that religion is for the perfection of him as a moral agent. So religion has served its purpose. Anthony Fauci has been perfected, obviously not, but he believes he has, and therefore he no longer needs religion, which means he no longer needs God, because in this theological inversion, God is subordinate to the creature. It's a little bit complicated, but the consequences of this are, you know, most people who stop going to church as Catholics, most of them, they don't go to other religions. They don't become heretics, they become apostates, or at least, again, lapsed Catholics are basically material apostates. Most Catholics and just stop going to Mass, and just stop being religious altogether. This is because 
if the goal, if the spirit of the council in this new age of humanity, as Paul VI would like to say, is ultimately the perfection of man and all institutions are for him, well, if man deems himself no longer needing religion, then who's to say he does? Because it's about him and not about God. And this line is completely arbitrary. And this is why we see this continual rise of the nuns, right? This religious group where they don't believe in anything. This is a result of the spirit of Vatican II. And this is worse, in my opinion, than if there were explicit errors in the text. And I'll explain why. It's not defined that there can't be errors in text. There can be errors in conciliar text. You can look into the theological background for this. I did a show on, is Vatican II infallible? And I went through all of this. You can find it if you look back. If Vatican II contained clear errors, then we could say, ha gotcha, that's wrong. But if it's a spirit of humanism, which is not heretical in and of itself, but an inversion of trajectory, then without making us heretics, it leads us away from the practice of the faith because it leads us towards an end where man is superior to God because God is subordinate to man's perfection. And this is the real grave problem. And this is why when you talk to people who have been formed in Catholic institutions they're, and they're you know, basically liberals or apostates, their, their mind is essentially logically impenetrable to the truths of religion because they have had this understanding for 50 years that the point of religion is the perfection of man. So through pride, we find ourselves to be perfected and therefore we find ourselves to be in no need of religion because I'm good, as Anthony Fauci would say. I don't need to go to church because I'm a good person. This is only a concept that someone could have if they believed religion was about them and not about God. And Gaudium et Spes is very clear with this trajectory. And Paul VI is very clear that humanism is the spirit of the council. So the true spirit of Vatican II seems to me a spirit of humanism that leads to apostasy. Maybe I haven't explained it perfectly. I'll probably do more videos on this as I read this book more, but I hope that makes sense. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.